Turn back to Malachi chapter 1 this morning, and we'll continue where we left off last week out of Malachi 1.5. And your eyes shall see, and you shall say, the Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel. The Lord will be magnified. And that's what God is after in this short burden of the Lord to Israel by Malachi, according to verse 1. That's what we should be after, that God would be magnified so that we could see Him by the eye of faith. And that so seeing him this way, uh, he would be honored and glorified. As we noted last week, the first point was, God's love is magnified when we fear his love. When God's love is fearful. And throughout this book, God is bringing his fear before the eyes of his people. You remember in verse 6, God says, A son honoreth his father, and a slave his master. If I be a father, where is mine honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear? Saith the Lord of hosts to you, priest that despise my name. So with that, God is saying, I am a father, but you're not honoring me. And I am a master, and you don't fear me. And so out of these six disputes that God enters into Israel with, He gives His dispute, which is designed to uncover and expose their sin, And then by exposing it, God speaks in such a way that His aim is to restore His own fear for their good. When God aims at the fear of His own name, He's always aiming at the good of His people. If God aims for you, apart from His name, it will be destructive for you and me. And so we see in God's first dispute, He says, I have loved you. Israel says, how have you loved us? Where is your love for me? And we noted last week that Israel's love, the the way Israel sees God, is through a distorted lens called a me-centered kind of lens. You know, what are you doing for me? How are you loving me? And so God's response is designed to bring fear before their eyes, And then the next thing we look at this morning is that God's love is a distinguishing love. So when God says, was not Esau Jacob's brother, yet I loved Jacob and hated Esau, God has made a distinguishing selection as regards to Jacob. His aim is Israel and that us this morning would fear the love of God and we would see that love as a distinguishing love. The word distinguish means... To mark off or to set apart, to be distinct. The question that we always have is this. On what basis does God love Jacob and set him apart from Esau and thus he hates Esau? That's the first question. Secondly, we typically want to know, is this right? Is it right for God? Is it fair for God to simply set his love on one person? And of course here... uh, national election toward Israel, he set his covenant purpose on Israel and not the Edomites, which are the descendants of Esau, which lived in the land of Seir. Is that right for God to do that? And so those are two answers that we want to try to answer this morning. As we think of God's distinguishing love, we need to remember God's aim is restore honor to his name as a father and to bring about a fear, a respect that God should have in the eyes of His people. And how does we do that? 
Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 10, where God has spoken in the past to the same Israel, closer to the origins of there being His selected nation, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Jacob is the namesake for Israel. In Deuteronomy 10, they have come out of the 40 years of wandering. God is going to reestablish His law to that younger generation. And Moses will recount in Deuteronomy 1 from Mount Horeb, Sinai, through Kadesh Barnea, where they rebelled against God through the 12 spies, 10 giving an evil report, 2 giving the right report. And then the 40 years, which brings them to Deuteronomy chapter 4, where there God then begins to reestablish His commandments, His laws. In chapter 10, He reminds them how God gave them the second set of tablets. And then, in the midst of this context, this is what Moses will say in verse 12 of Deuteronomy chapter 10. And now, Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of you? But to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all His ways, and to love Him, and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, to keep the commandments of the Lord and His statutes, what I command you this day for thy good question mark. Which means the answer is, yes, God requires that Israel fear Him. Yes, to love Him, to walk in His ways, and to serve Him with all their soul and all their heart, and to keep His commandments, which is for their good. So the fear of the Lord is for the good of Israel. And when you fear God, it's good for you. So God is after their fear like He is in Malachi chapter 1. What will God say here designed to cultivate and to cause the people of God to fear? Verse 14, Behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens is the Lord's thy God, the earth also with all that therein is. Only the Lord had a delight in thy fathers to love them, and he chose their seed after them, even you above all people as it is this day. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your hearts, and be no more stiff-necked. When God aims to bring about a fear in His people, He talks about His distinguishing love. Whether it be Jacob and Esau, whether it be Israel and the Edomites. And so God wants them to know this so that they would be humbled, so that He would cut the nerve of pride and arrogance and presumption, and so that they would fall flat on their faces and fear God because of His distinguishing love. Now, what does God point to that is distinguishing? The word only means exclusive. With the word only, God is saying, this is the exclusive reason that I've chosen you above all people. Because you're really not above all people, according to Deuteronomy chapter 7. He made clear there, the Lord did not set His love upon you because you were more than any other nation. In fact, you were fewer. But because the Lord loved you. The exclusive reason for God's distinguishing love is because of His distinguishing love. Only the Lord had a delight. That's it. He willed to delight. He decided to love. 
And his delight is owing to his own will. God is sovereign. He is not coerced. He is not influenced. He is the independent God. And there is no other reason, the exclusive reason of selecting Israel over Edom was solely and completely out of the Lord's delight and nothing else. Furthermore, Ephesians 1 tells us His delight is good. It is good pleasure. It is not evil pleasure. It is not wrong pleasure. It is righteous pleasure. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, then God has delighted to choose you and call you out of the darkness into His marvelous light simply because He decided to delight to do so. There is no other cause. It is exclusive to God's delight. What is God after in verse 12? And now, O Israel, what does the Lord require of thee? That you fear Him. Doesn't that kind of make you tremble just a little bit? That the only difference between you and the person out there living a wicked life who does not trust Jesus is the delight of God alone and nothing else. That's God's aim here and in Malachi chapter 1. It's owing to God's delight. Now with this word, exclusive, which means to set apart from all others, God is going to exclude other reasons that Israel might have and that you might have and that people might have for the reason why He would set His love on a sinner. Israel might say, well, we know why we're above the Philistines because the Philistines have their gods and the Edomites have their gods. And of course, we have God. So, you know, their gods take care of them. God takes care of us. What did God say in verse 14? Behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens is the Lord thy gods and the earth and all that is in them. God owns the Philistines. He owns the Edomites. He owns the Amorites. He owns the Russians. He owns the Chinese. He owns everybody. That's not the reason. He could have just as righteously and delighted to choose the Edomites and pass over and hate Israel according to his own sovereign goodwill and pleasure. But he didn't. Why? Only the Lord had a delight to love your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and to choose their seed after them. That's why Israel, and that's why, believer, God is totally free in what He does. You can't teach God. You can't influence God. You can't counsel God. He cannot be coerced. His Choice resides in his own will alone. Somebody may say, well, if we look at the history of Israel, it must be that Jacob was just a good old boy and Esau was not that good. Wrong again. When Jacob comes out of the womb, his parents see him hanging on to the hill of his brother Esau. So they named him as a namesake on that event called a heel grabber, a supplanter. They looked and says, this little tyke looks like he's trying to get ahead of Esau because it's as if he knows that the firstborn gets a double portion of all that the father owns. And Jacob proved to be just such a guy, didn't he? A supplanter is one that uses strategy, coercion, manipulation to advance himself. And that's exactly what he did. Even Esau could look at Jacob and say, Did not they name you well? Jacob, the supplanter, 
because he got the birthright from his brother. When he came in from the field faint, he'd been hunting. Now, when you're faint in that day, you don't go to the refrigerator and grab some food or grab a snack at the, at the local convenience store. I mean, it takes a while to, to get some food together. But Jacob has this bowl of pottage. His own brother, Jacob, sees Esau faint. And rather than show love and compassion, he says, I'll give it to you for the birthright. What a supplanter. What a trickster. What a huckster. What a deceiver. No, no. It is not because Jacob is better than Esau. In fact, by my view, he was worse Was he not? Somebody says, well, Jacob did come to faith in God, and so he did. That was it. The reason that God loved Jacob and hated Esau, because he looked ahead of time, and he saw what would happen. He said, you know, I see that Jacob is going to choose me. He's going to have faith in me, so I'll choose him based on his choice. Well, who's the sovereign? Who's the sovereign in that, in that scenario? Well, God's not. You are. But when Paul is discussing these two brothers, these two twins that came out of the same womb, had the same parents, as to the reason, he completely destroys the idea that there was something about Jacob, something that Jacob merited, because the choice of God was while they were in the womb and even prior to the womb. So it would say, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto the elder, elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. Before they were born, the choice was made. And it wasn't because God foresaw faith, because he had to call Jacob before he ever had faith. And that wouldn't even be logical anyway, would it? If God were to say, well, you know, I'm going to choose Jacob. Well, Jacob doesn't exist. Okay, I've got to decree to create Jacob so he can trust in me. He doesn't even exist without the decree of God. Well, his faith doesn't exist without the effectual call of God. Because God says in Romans 9-11, not of works, but of him that calls effectually. Jacob doesn't exist without the decree of God, decree of God, and Jacob doesn't trust God unless God acts first to call him effectually, so he can trust in God. That's just bizarre to say that God does all that so he can choose the person that chooses him. No, beloved, God is excluding every other reason when he says only the Lord had a delight to love Jacob, and that's it. Nothing foreseen, nothing about Jacob, nothing. Now, why is God telling the Israelites this in Malachi 1 and here? What does the Lord require of you? Israel? To fear God. And don't be presumptuous. And thinking it was your faith. And it was something about you that moved God to take a delight in choosing you. Only the Lord had a delight because the Lord loved you, because He loved you, because He loved you. That's it. That's all. Period. Exclamation. Bow down and fear God is what He's after. And again, it, it does have that effect, doesn't it? To tremble at the reality. Your salvation and your faith and your being loved of God is owing to God alone. And He could have just as righteously passed over you and hated you just like He hated Esau. 
God is to be honored and to be feared and to be loved and to be treasured. Now somebody says, but is that really fair for God? To love one and hate the other just because God wants to love one and he passes over the other and they're the object of his wrath. Paul answers that question in Romans chapter 9. When he says, as it is written, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated, what shall we then say? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. Is this not right for God to do so? Well, Paul doesn't just answer, never let it be so. He gives a reason why God is right when he acts this way. In two ways. He answers Moses and he answers Pharaoh. And the design is, by God through Paul, to tell us how God is righteous by distinguishing and setting his love on one and setting apart the other for the object of his wrath. By what he said to Moses and what he said to Pharaoh. And here's what he said. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth. If you will to come to Christ, that's not why. It's because God calls you. If you run the race set before you, that's not why. It's because the Holy Spirit is empowering you. It is God that showeth mercy. So the first answer is God acts in freedom like a potter, and he has compassion on whoever he wants to have compassion. Whoever he decides. But the second answer shores it up together like this. The scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he wills, he hardens. When God is acting for the glory of His own name, He's right. Clearly what He said to Moses and Pharaoh, He was acting for the declaration of His own glory. Through Moses and the Israelites, because He willed to have compassion. Through Pharaoh and the Egyptians, because He willed to harden and destroy. And what did He do? He declared His name throughout all the earth. Paul's answer, He's right. For that reason. Beloved, God is not right because He checks the Constitution and makes sure He adheres to it. He's not right because He looks in a book and says, I guess I can do this. I guess I can have compassion. And I guess I can harden because there's this book that tells me I'm right. No, when He acts for the glory and the exaltation of His name, He's right. And He's always doing right. If He acts contrary to that, He's wrong. And he's not right. That is the only exclamation or explanation that God will give us in Romans 9. As to the distinguishing, set-apart love of God for one in a nation. And the distinguishing, set-apart hatred of God for a person or persons or the Edomites. And the aim of of God in Deuteronomy and Malachi and in fact the entire Bible is that we fear God and we tremble and we say oh God how have you loved us with a love that we don't deserve that we can't earn that we can't merit solely because you decided to love us over other people that will bring a deep humility 
to your life. And that will cut and sever the root of pride. Again and again, we recognize it's not of this. It's all of God. A distinguishing love. But God goes further in our text. He's going to further unpack his hatred for Esau and the Edomites and his unwavering commitment to destroy them. And that's our next point this morning. God's love is unwavering. Now remember, the reason God does it this way, it's a bit surprising that again, when God is going to talk about His unwavering love, He doesn't start talking about all the ways He loved Israel and how He was committed in the past and the present. He's going to talk about all the ways He was unwaveringly committed to the destruction of the Edomites. Why? For fear. See, God is continuing this process of cultivating a fear in Israel by showing what He did to the Edomites. Look at verse 2 of Malachi 1. And I hated Esau and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons or the jackals of the wilderness. Whereas Edom saith, we are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus saith the Lord of hosts. They shall build. The idea here is, if they shall build, what's God's response? I will throw down. And they shall call them the border of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. Now remember, God is highlighting His love for Israel by contrasting His hatred for Esau and His destruction of the Edomites. Why? If I be a father, where is mine honor? If I be a master, where is my fear? And it works, doesn't it? The Edomites, descendants of Esau. The word Edom means red. They get their namesake from Esau. Remember in Genesis 25, when Esau was born, he came out red and hairy. In Genesis 25, when he was faint and Jacob had that bowl of pottage, it was red. He said, give me some of that red pottage. Therefore, his name was called Edom. It was a play on words. It's like his name was a pun because the two Hebrew words are very similar. Red is Edom and Edom is Edom. Very similar sounding. And wouldn't you know that the hill country of the Edomites, rocky soil was very what? Red. Red at birth, red pottage, and the Edomites settled in the land of Seir, southeast of the Dead Sea, south of Moab, in a rocky red soil country. The Edomites were enemies of Israel. When Israel confronted one of the first nations from Mount Horeb to go towards Canaan, the Edomites would not let them pass through. You're not going through this country. So they went around the coast a long way, and God said, Do not fight with them. They are your brothers. In fact, they were very close relatives. Esau and Jacob, Edomites, Israelites. From that time, Esau... Or the Edomites of Esau or the descendants fought against Israel or supported those that fought Israel time and time again. And God gave them victory again and again. Even when Israel was exiled by the Babylonians, the Edomites dealt treacherously against Israel. In Psalm 137 verse 7, they said, O Lord, remember Edom in the day of Jerusalem when they said, Raise it, raise it, even to the foundations thereof. Raise is R-A-S-E, which means destroy it, level it. God did level it, 
But the Babylonians also left the surrounding states in misery, which included the Edomites. From that day forward, the Edomites were never again a force to be reckoned with. Even their heritage, which God laid waste, was this city in a rocky cliff in the land of Seir, the Mount Seir. It was a city that could only be accessed with a narrow canyon. It was easily defended from all enemies except one. God, and He wiped them out and destroyed them and left the land for jackals. A jackal is a wolf-like kind of creature that when you find jackals in the city, that means no one's there. It's desolate. It's decimated. It's over. Now, from that time in the present time, what if Edom decides, well, we are impoverished, we have been laid waste, we'll build again. What does God say? I will throw them down. I will be indignant with Edom forever. What's God saying? I have an unwavering commitment to destroy your enemies, the Edomites. Which means what? God has an unwavering commitment to love the Israelites. Again, why does He say it this way? Because His aim is to restore their fear. By pointing out what he's done with other nations and then asking them to look, who built you up where you're standing at the very moment Malachi delivered these words? Is the temple rebuilt? Is the wall rebuilt? Are you still a nation before me, saith the Lord? Yes, they were. Why? Because God's unwavering commitment to love Israel with a preserving and a protecting love Against their enemies, which preserved them as a nation to the very time that Malachi wrote this burden. Now here's the question for spiritual Israel. I want to transfer to us this morning, because we're not a favored nation. That time is over. But we're a favored people. The people of God that trust in Jesus Christ. In the gospel church age that we live in. So here's the question. How is God preserving and protecting your faith in Him in such a way that's designed to cause us to fear God and it's designed to work for our good? Now you can hear in their words, wherein have you loved us is synonymous to saying, how have you done us any good? I mean, things are falling apart, life is bad. How have you done us any good? When we have a me-centered kind of view of God's love, we will be at the center and will always question life, circumstances, and events based on how is it going with me? Beloved, what we want to see here is that when God loves a person, His aim in restoring their fear is the aim of restoring their satisfaction in that fear. I'm going to prove that. When God aims at Israel and restoring His fear before their eyes, He's aiming at their good by aiming at the satisfaction of their soul. Jeremiah 32. Here before the exile, Jeremiah is speaking to Israel. And he's speaking about their lack of fear to God. That's why they're going into exile. That's why Malachi is writing. God speaking through Malachi in Malachi chapter 1. And that is what is God is speaking to you today and to me. 
We have a problem with fear. We don't fear God before our eyes as natural people. So God's grace comes. His aim is to put His fear in our hearts for what end? And when He does that, God is protecting, He's preserving that fear for what end? Our good. And what is that good? His aim is to satisfy your soul in that fear. Deuteronomy, or Jeremiah chapter 32 and verse 37. Jeremiah 32, 37. This is pre-exile, Malachi's post-exile, but you see the problem is the same. Behold, I will gather them out of all countries, whether I have driven them in mine anger and in my fury and in great wrath, and I will bring them again unto this place, and I will cause them to dwell safely. Now the immediate fulfillment is Malachi 1. That's happened. God has fulfilled that text. He brought them back from exile. They're in Jerusalem at the writing of Malachi. But there's a future fulfillment in what's coming in the next few verses related to the eternal covenant that God now is speaking to spiritual Israel or all those that put their faith in Him. And this is how He says it. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. Verse 39. And I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. What's the problem? They don't fear God. What's our problem? By nature, we don't fear God. God is going to overcome this lack of fear for spiritual Israel by giving them one heart and one way. What is the aim of God doing this? For the good of them and of their children after them. Verse 40. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not depart from them to do them what? Good. But I will put my fear in their hearts and they shall not depart from me. Yea, I will rejoice over them to do them good. Three times. Do them good for them good. I'm even going to rejoice over them to do them good. And then he says, with my whole heart and with my whole soul. Now how unwavering and intense is that? When you do something with your whole heart and your whole soul, your whole being is in it. Now quantify that with God. What are the words we would use? His passion, His mind, His heart, His resolve. He's completely all in as the idiom that we use. I am all in for your good. I think that sounds really good, doesn't it? If you're looking through the lens of a God-centered love and not a me-centered love. If you're looking through a me-centered love, it's not going to be good, what we're about to find out. But if it's God-centered, this is really good. So God is going to overcome a lack of fear, and He's going to be so committed that He will not depart from them to keep this fear going so that they will not ultimately depart from Him. The word depart is apostatize. doesn't mean you can't depart. doesn't mean you can't lose the fear of God. Have you done that? means you can't apostatize from God. You cannot. Why? He will not depart from you to stir and put this fear in your heart. Alright, so let's ask the first question. What does it mean to have one heart and one way? Well, Israel had two hearts and two ways. They were double-minded. They were like what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 to people within the church who have a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. They have outward forms of religion. 
They look religious and they even act religious on the outside, but inwardly they don't have the power of godliness. And what is that, Paul? They love pleasures, but they don't love God. Having a form. Participle tells us the power is the love of God that they don't have. They don't fear God. They don't love God. They have no pleasure in God. Therefore, for Israel, it was all external form. No internal power. God's going to overcome that with one heart and one way. With a whole heart toward God. I will give them a whole heart for me, saith the Lord. A whole heart is not a sinless heart. But it's a heart that on the outside is taking place to some degree on the inside. What is that? The fear and the love of God. If we stay in the context of Jeremiah, Jeremiah will affirm that same idea in Jeremiah chapter 2 when he said, Your own wickedness and your backsliding shall correct you. Verse 19 of Jeremiah 2. Know and see that it's a bitter thing and evil that you've forsaken the Lord thy God and my fear is not in you. What's evil? What's bitter? You've forsaken God because you don't fear Him. Jeremiah 2.13 My people have committed two evils. So verse 19, there's an evil and there's a bitter thing. Verse 13, there's two evils. What are the two evils? They have forsaken me. Verse 13, verse 19, they have forsaken the Lord. So the bitter and the evil thing of verse 19 is part and parcel with the two evil things in verse 13. They've forsaken the Lord, they've forsaken the Lord. Verse 13, they've forsaken me as a fountain. They don't fear me. They've forsaken me as a fountain of living waters, which means they don't fear me. God is a cool, refreshing source of satisfying water to the soul. And they don't fear Him. Which means, you're not a fountain. Oh, you're not a fountain at all. So they turn and dig wells where they think they will find water to satisfy an empty soul who's searching and looking to find some place of contentment and fulfillment. But it's broken. It's broken. Can we not see that, beloved? The wells you are drinking from are broken. But God in His unwavering commitment to glorify His name and magnify it, what does He do? I'm overcoming, I'm overcoming that. I'm going to give them one heart, one way that they will fear me or see me as a fountain of living waters. So when God is aiming for His fear, what's He aiming for? To satisfy your soul? That's amazing. So He's doing Israel good. But they don't see it that way. Oh, because you're not aiming at my goods, my money, my job, my vacation, my retirement. So you don't love me. God says, I'm loving you. Because I'm aiming for my fear, therefore I'm aiming for the satisfaction of your soul. And we have the audacity to say, how have you loved me, God? So God is going to give one heart in one way, which He's given you as a believer, so that you would see Him that way. And He does this for the good of them and of their children after them. Parents. 
If you wanted to give your children the one good thing above every other thing, and you couldn't give them anything else on the planet, another experience, another activity, another event, just one thing, what would it be? Well, you, you read the text, you know what the answer should be, the fear of God. You say, well, but I can't give them that. Well, God doesn't take that as an excuse, apparently, out of Deuteronomy. He says it over and over again. My people would learn to fear me, and they would teach their children to fear me. How are we doing? With our words and with our example, are we modeling to people, our children, that God is a fountain of living waters? And there's nothing that satisfies like God. And I know that requires some repentance, doesn't it? Acknowledging, I I didn't act that way on this occasion. I, I made a wrong decision. Coming back to the place we fear God, we model before our children and others that we fear God, that He's a fountain, that we have one heart, one way, and we love Him above every other experience, above every other event. He is supreme. He's supreme. That's what God is after. Why? For your good. Why? To satisfy your soul. And the insanity of my brain. I don't know if you you do this. The insanity of my brain as I go start digging wells. Thinking, i got to find it somewhere. Even the Ten Commandments were given so that the people would fear God. Just teach them the Ten Commandments. They'd say, how can a person do that? That's right, you can't. But Jesus did. He feared God and kept His commandments. And in Him we live. In Him we've kept the commandments. In Him we have feared God perfectly. And because of Him we can cultivate the kind of fear that looks at the love of God and His unwavering commitment to protect and to preserve us by doing us good and putting the fear of God in our hearts so that we would love and treasure Him. But He goes further. How is God going to protect and preserve this fear in His unwavering commitment? And this is in verse 40. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts so that that they shall not depart. I've always been told all my life we like those shall nots. Well, here's one right here. They shall not, they will not depart in an apostasy way. An apostate is someone that departs and stays departed. A Christian is one that may depart and may lose the fear of the Lord. How will it be restored? God will not depart from you. He has an unwavering commitment to His name. Therefore, he has an unwavering commitment for your good. He will not stop coming after you. That is great news if you, if you know you're a sinner and a sheep that can just depart at any given moment. That's great news. And what does he do? He does whatever it takes to restore your fear of his name. Why? Because his aim. His commitment that he is resolved to do is to satisfy your soul. Now, if he's going to do that, he has to keep you in the fear of God. Which means what? The way he's going to do you good is by tribulation. 
and sorrow and pressure and affliction. That's how he does it. This is so critical because we try to interpret God's love based on a me-centered kind of attitude. And we define God's love based on what we think He should do for us. And all the while God says His love is committed to your fear, therefore He will do whatever it takes, whatever it takes to show you His glory and His fear. And what does it take? It takes trial, affliction, and tribulation. No wonder Paul said in Romans 5, 1 through 4, Therefore we are justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein you stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. The word stand means continue. Now if we're going to continue by faith, we need access into grace. If we're to maintain our status as justified, We have to keep believing because your justification is predicated on faith. There is no person in the Bible that's justified apart from having faith in Jesus. Not a single person. So what does God do? You have to have access into this grace to keep standing by faith. And you have to have faith to get into this grace because that's how we access grace. So He gives faith and He preserves faith. So that you keep standing. You can't lose your status as a justified person. The word stand is a perfect tense. Happened in the past, never to be repeated, but the ongoing result. Justification is not repeated again and again. But your standing and trusting Him keeps going. Why? Because God is going to come to you in a certain way to keep you standing. Not keep you from ever sinning, keep you trusting. Paul, how is he going to do that? Not only so, we glory in tribulation also, knowing that tribulation is working and producing patience. Now that context tells us, Paul is going to say, this is how God is going to keep you in His fear and in His love and preserve you. He brings tribulation into your life. Tribulation is pressure, distress, persecution, affliction. It's just a catch-all word for any kind of pain you experience. Any and all. Tribulation produces endurance. And endurance produces experience. Because to get to the experience, you've got to endure the tribulation. And so when we're enduring, we experience something. The word means to prove a testing, a trial, like a laboratory experiment where they put something in the laboratory and they test it and they test it and then it, it, it proves to be the right formula. It proves to be the right spec. It proves to be the right formula for the cure of a disease and, and everybody rejoices. There's proof. Now, what do we as Christians experience through tribulation? And endurance. We discover and experience something more about God. That's what God is after in tribulation. We experience and then experience produces hope. And hope does not make a shame because what? The love of God is 
shed abroad in your hearts by the Holy Spirit. Now that's what we're talking about, the love of God. So God clearly has an unswerving commitment to the fear of His name and the love of His own name so that He's willing to put you in tribulation so that He can pour out the love of God in your heart, more of it through the discovery of that love which only comes through tribulation. That's what God is doing. So if we try to interpret God's love with a me-centered kind of view that says, well, God's going to do me good, and then we start to define all that good, what happens when tribulation comes? We immediately question the love of God. We say, I guess God doesn't love me. Why do you say that? Because there's nothing good happening. How are you interpreting that? I lost my job, and I, I got cancer, and inflation's going up, and... I don't have as much money. Really? You're looking through the wrong lens, beloved. The tribulation is producing patience, is producing an experience that produces more hope. And then God's love is poured out, is the word, by the Holy Ghost. And how is it poured out? This doesn't happen in a vacuum. A vacuum would mean there's no connection, there's no context, it's in isolation. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. We always try to interpret God's love in a vacuum. People do it all the time. I know God loves me and He's okay with this. Why? Well, because it just feels good to me. That's not how we interpret God's love based on how you may feel with a certain kind of activity that says to you, well, God must love me because it feels good. The Holy Spirit must be with me because it... It just seems all right. Now, how does hope happen according to Romans 15? We know that whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning and admonition, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. God's going to pour out His love in connection with His revelation. That's where He's bringing you to in tribulation. He's bringing you back to the Word. Now, if He brings you back to Malachi, what's He bringing back to? He's bringing you back to His fear. Now, if He's bringing you back to His fear, what's He bringing you back to, Jeremiah 32? He's bringing you back to a satisfied soul in that fear. Is that good? If God doesn't do that for you, it's very bad. Because He's not doing that for Esau, or didn't. He didn't do it for the Edomites. And He won't do it for the wicked. If God never ever does another good thing for you tangibly in this world, and He does a lot, doesn't He? You just go home today and walk in your house and eat food, and there are many concrete, tangible ways that God is good to you. If He never does another good thing for you like that, and simply commits His love to pursue you, to come after you, and to put His fear in your heart so as to satisfy your soul. He loves you infinitely. The problem with me and you is we're looking through a distorted lens called me. How have you loved me? And God answers to produce fear. So that we would bow down and treasure, adore, tremble, rejoice at the God who remained resolved and committed with His purposes through Israel. He had a purpose through Israel. He kept going. And God's unswerving, unswerving un, unwavering commitment to do you good and love you 
by putting His fear in your heart, and by not departing and coming to you again and again to restore, to cultivate, to stir up His fear all the way to glory. That's wonderful, isn't it? And so what should Israel do? Fall before His face and worship and adore the God of Israel, the God that loves you, the God that is committed to you, and the God that finally says, your eyes will see, and the Lord will be magnified from the borders of Israel. Gets us back to verse 5. Your eyes shall see, and you shall say, when you see, with the right lens, through faith, you'll say, the Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel. So in some way, when Israel sees the destruction of their enemy, the Edomites here, it's going to serve to magnify God's love, His grace, His distinguishing love, His fearful love, His unwavering love. And beloved, it's going to work the same for you and me. In the final day, when God cast away the wicked forever, your eyes will see it, you will know it, and God is going to be magnified in a greater way because of it, than had he done it in some way different. Find this in Romans 9.22. What if God, willing to show his power to make his wrath known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? God is willing, because his aim is to show the complete fullness of his name, all of it, and his wrath. It's holy wrath, it's righteous wrath, it's not bad for God to do. And God is long-suffering with the wicked every day. He suffers long again and again, and they never will turn to God. And beloved, by the way, sometimes you talk to people that will try to use the doctrine of election to sort of be okay with where they are. You know, I guess I'm not chosen, so what does it matter? I'll just keep on living the life that I'm living. Well, the problem is, is not God. The problem is your will. Like Jesus told the Pharisees, you will not come to me. Why wouldn't they? Because they would not come to Christ. Their wills were in bondage. So if you carry on and using the doctrine of election as some excuse, then the whole reason is you would not, you will not, you cannot because of your own will is in darkness and in bondage. So the wicked don't turn because the wicked don't want to. It's like the... Discussion you often have with your own addictions and habits. You say, well, I, I would stop if I wanted to. Therein lies the problem. You cannot because you don't want to. <laughs> Try to want to do something you don't want to do. Can't do it. God is long-suffering with the wicked. They will not. They want not. They cannot because they love what they're doing. Just like you used to love the cesspools that you drank out of. And I did too. So God is long-suffering. Why is God willing to show His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much long-suffering, much long-suffering the vessels of wrath, in order that He might make known the riches of His glory on the vessels of mercy. And that is even in order that the one serves the other. So when you see and know the wrath of God that you've been saved from, you're going to tremble and you're going to rejoice and say, God be magnified. God be magnified. That's what you're going to say. 
what the text says we're going to say. When you know the fullness of the riches of His glory. And beloved, that starts now. Right? How do we know that we'll be part of that one day? Because now we have seen, we know the fear of God. We know Him as a Father. We know Him as a Lord. We know Him as a Master. We want to honor Him as our great Father. And we want to fear Him as our great Master. And we want to pursue Him and love Him by His help, through His mercy, through His grace, in the way that God says we should. And what will happen now in a smaller way than in the final day is that the Lord will be magnified in your life. How will it be magnified? Because... When His fear is before your eyes, what's your experience with the love of God? It's wonderful. It's peaceful. It's comforting. It's encouraging. It's satisfying. It's joyful. So how is God being magnified? Through the wonder, through the comfort, through the peace, through the joy, through being satisfied, through all the words that the Bible tells us about. God then is being magnified because you're saying it out of a heart that fears Him and knows something about His wonderful love. Now God is getting glory. Not with your lips and your mouths, but your heart. Because you have joy and peace and love in the God of heaven. And if you don't know this fear this morning, what is Jesus saying to you? He's saying, come to me, beloved. He'll give you rest. Quit drinking from the cesspools of fountains that will never ever satisfy. And you know what I'm talking about? I know what I'm talking about, right? Come to the fresh waters of Christ. And He will not cast you out. He said so. Bring your burdens. Bring your load. Bring your care. Bring your so- Bring everything to Him. He says, I will receive you. But you must come by faith, acknowledging Him as Lord, as Master, and as a Father. And bow down and worship the Christ. And you're on your pathway to what? A fountain that never runs dry. Isn't that the song we sing? I'm drinking from a fountain that never runs dry. That's what Jesus said in John 6. It'll never, John 4, it'll never run dry. So... If your burden is that you see God for the first time in a way that you fear Him, you honor Him, you want to come Him, Jesus says, come. We bid you come. Let's pray. Father, 